Amen. Thanks, Wade. So our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 11. We are making our way through the gospel of Mark. We've done this a few times in the history of our church where we've taken a gospel like this. And then what we do is we time it typically to kind of work through the passion material as we lead up to Easter. And I've always enjoyed that. So we'll be doing Mark all the way until Resurrection Sunday in April, where we deal with the resurrection passage here in the gospel, and then we'll move on. But as we make our way through Mark, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, we're going to read uh, through verse 25. Uh, You can follow along with me if you want to in a Bible in front of you, or you can grab your own Bible, or the page there, the insert that has the scripture passage on the back side of the outline for you. It's also on the screen behind me. If you're watching from home, it should be on your screen as well. Let's read. Uh, together, if we could. Beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that is Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus was hangry. Okay? And the disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching." When evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that God's word teaches, obey all that it commands, trust in all that it promises, and receive all that it reveals. Would you say with me, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, are both the same and also very different. They tell the same story, generally, but each of the Gospel writers has its own technique and style, which makes the telling very different. And one of the dominant features, and I can't believe we've gotten this far through Mark without really dealing with this. It probably is a shame on the preacher moment in, in, in that case. But one of the dominant features of Mark's gospel is what scholars have called Mark's sandwich technique. Let me explain. A sandwich, oh man, there's not much better than a really good sandwich, is there? I've been trying to lose some weight lately. I've, I haven't had a sandwich in a while. But a sandwich, you have two pieces of bread and then all of the stuff in between. And so in the same way Mark often structures his telling of the gospel stories into sections that create a sandwich. And so Mark will often begin a story and then change to a different scene in the middle of his telling and then go back 
and finish where he began as he, as he grouped material together, and, and like a sandwich, two pieces of bread and then something in the middle. Now, this part of Mark 11 is made up of two different scenes. There is the scene of the fig tree where they come across this fig tree and then the scene where they go on into the temple. So let's look at it again as we trace our way through the text. Jesus and his disciples, verses 12 through 14, they left Bethany, which is about a a day's journey outside of Jerusalem, to go into Jerusalem. Now along the way they came across a fig tree which Jesus cursed because it had no fruit. Then... The scene shifts beginning in verses 15 and then through verses 19. They went on into Jerusalem where Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. The next day, beginning in verse, or verse 20, they passed by the fig tree again. So you see, he started with the fig tree. He changed our focus to the temple. He came back to the fig tree, and the fig tree there is withered to the root. So the fig tree in our sandwich technique illustration is the bread, the temple, and all that's happening there is the meat and cheese and veggies and all the stuff in between. But what we need to understand is that the fig tree is an illustration. It explains the temple. The fig tree was an illustration of the religious life of the Jews typified by their worship in the temple. There was something significantly lacking in the temple worship that caused Jesus to react in a similar way there with those people to how he reacted with the fig tree. And this lack is contrasted with the true faith of the disciples down in the later verses, which moves mountains. So here's the question for us this morning before we get into the details here, okay? When's the last time that you took a true, honest, spiritual inventory of your life? It's a good thing to do, right? It's a good thing Every business owner would tell you every now and then you got to take an inventory. You got to know how much product you have. You got to know whether it's time to buy more, what you're running out of, what you have too much of, all of these kinds of things. It's just good, good business practice. And in the same way, it's, it's a really good spiritual practice. You need to, on a regular basis, take a good spiritual inventory of your life. Well, guess what? That's what this text is about. The king, the maker, has come to take a spiritual inventory of his people and their religious life. And that's us too. And so this morning we want to see and we want to submit ourselves to Jesus's inventory of the temple and then also his inventory of our lives as well. And we're going to see that there's a contrast here between what he finds there in the temple. And really the temple is characterized like that tree as just a bunch of leaves but no fruit. Versus the new community of true faith and love that Jesus begins to describe down in verse 21 and following. So there's a contrast. Are we like that temple, just leaves but with no fruit, or are we more like the new community of the spirit that Jesus intends to create as he describes it beginning in verse 21 and beyond? Okay, that's kind of where we're headed this morning. So first, let's look at the temple, okay? Let's look at what happens here. To understand the temple, you have to understand the fig tree, okay? So let's actually start there. It says, look in verse 13, it says that Jesus was hungry and I love that because I get hungry and it makes me do all kinds of crazy things. Anybody else? And Jesus is a little bit crazy here, right? He's a little bit like, it's just interesting. He's hungry and so he saw a fig tree in the distance, it says, and there were leaves. But when he came closer, he realized that even though there were leaves, there was no fruit. Now it says, verse 13, that it was not the season for the fig, for the fruit, for the figs to be there. But... The fig tree was in leaf, and that's significant because we know from archaeology and from actually you can go there and see these same kind of trees today that on these trees, the fruit always comes before the leaves. 
And so there would be fruit before there would be leaves. Jesus saw leaves, and so he expected, oh, there are leaves on that tree. There should be fruit, but there was no fruit. In other words, the tree was a fake. There were leaves. So there should have been fruit, but there was no fruit. And it's interesting, that was the problem with the temple too. The temple and the religious life of the people. Just a bunch of leaves, but there was no fruit. Charles Spurgeon, who returned to this passage often in his ministry, he uh, preached a number of sermons on it. He said this, listen to this, it's kind of a long quote, but it's so good that I wanted to read it to you. He says, the blighted fig tree was a singularly apt simile of the Jewish nation. He said the nation had promised great things to God when all the other nations were like trees without leaves, making no profession of allegiance to the true God. The Jewish nation was covered with the leafage of abundant religious profession. Scribes, Pharisees, priests, and elders of the people were all sticklers for the letter of the law and boasters of being worshipers of the one true God. They were a fig tree in full leaf, but there was no fruit upon them, for the people were neither holy nor just nor true nor faithful towards God nor loving to their neighbor. Listen to this sentence. He says, the Jewish church was a mass of glittering profession unsupported by spiritual life. Yikes. A mass of of glittering profession. Everything looked good on the outside and the way that they had, you know, they showed up for church. They did all of these things, but it was unsupported by spiritual life. Jesus came to the fig tree looking for fruit because he was hungry. He came to the temple looking for real faith because he was the owner of the house. And in both cases, he found pretense and hypocrisy, a mass of glittering professions, Spurgeon says, but no spiritual life. Lots of activities, lots of rules, lots of rituals, lots of sacrifices, lots of religious busyness, but no faith and no love. And this is a real danger for religious folks, not just these people, but for all of us too. And it's funny that the busier you are in your religion, the bigger the danger to be leafy but lacking fruit. So let me make a couple of applications before we move on. And the first thing I would say is this. Just thinking about this text for a minute. Be wary of first impressions. Because they are often made from a distance without a true knowing of the person or the situation. Jesus, it says, saw a fig tree in the distance and it looked great. There were leaves. He could see the leaves from far away. But then he came up close and when he came up close and did a thorough inspection of this tree, there was no fruit. So don't think, don't think that you know me just because you come and listen to me talk from this stage on Sunday mornings. If you want to know what I'm really like, you need to ask somebody who's close to me. They'll probably tell you. My wife or my kids, I mean the people who've known me for 20 years or more, this text in the same way calls for a thorough examination. Don't, don't in the same way, don't keep people at a distance. Don't always just be trying to keep people at a distance. That's a huge red flag. So be wary of first impressions. But the second thing is this, is in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and the woman, at the very beginning of humanity, sinned against the Lord, and they realized that they were naked. If you remember that story, it says that they tried to clothe themselves. And do you remember what they used to hide their nakedness? Leaves. But what kind of leaves? It's designated fig leaves interesting 
The Bible claims that God does not merely judge on outward appearance. He sees all the way to the heart. He discerns beyond our actions to our thoughts and our intents to the things that we think but would never say out loud. There is no hiding from God. We are naked and exposed to his eyes. He sees with x-ray vision. It's terrifying. And one day we will have to give an account. We will stand before this one who sees us with x-ray vision to give an account for our lives, not just for the stuff that we do, but for all of it. And we all on some level, whether consciously or unconsciously, know this, even if you're not a Christian. The scripture says that there's something inside of you that is revealing this to be true to you all the time. And it creates a certain amount of discomfort. I don't know. Terror. I, you know, use whatever word you want. Or I guess the proper word would be shame. The man and the woman were naked and they were shamed in Genesis. And we have a desperate need to cover our nakedness. To feel less vulnerable. To feel more in control. To feel less exposed. And here's the thing. The fig leaves of religious profession... Those are the religion. Religion is the best kind of fig leaves. Cover your nakedness with your own righteousness, your goodness, your busyness, your spiritual resume. In Genesis, God made the man and the woman garments of skin and clothed them there at the end of chapter 2 through a sacrifice. And it was a hint of what would become explicit that in truth, and here's the message of Christianity in case you're, you're new to this whole thing. The only thing that can truly clothe your nakedness is to be hidden in Jesus Christ, whom God made to be your sin so that he could clothe you in his righteousness. Fig leaves will not do, not even religious fig leaves. And that leads me to a third thing, which is that the same activity, prayers, sacrifices, rituals, all of these things that we do, the same activity can either be leaves or fruit. It's interesting. Depending on whether you're working for a righteousness of your own or whether you're resting in Jesus, which is really kind of how we would split the whole world up. If you pray to get God's attention or to prove that you're serious and that he should give you what you're asking for, it's leaves. It's not fruit. It looks good, but it's not the real thing. If you pray... On the other hand, because you know that God delights in you and he hears you for Jesus' sake, then that's fruit. Same activity, prayer, same activity, but one is fake and the other is a real thing. And so the point here is not that what the Jews were doing was wrong. They were doing the right things, eh, in most cases, but with the wrong motivations or for the wrong reasons or toward the wrong goals or with the wrong priorities. They were trying to make themselves righteous and it corrupted their religious life with God. They got way too worried about the rules and whether or not they were doing it right. And then it caused them to really treat people horribly. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, it's all just leaves. There's no power. There's no spiritual reality behind any of it. And so here's the question. What about you? That's the question, isn't it? Do an inventory of your spiritual life. If you're here and you would call yourself religious, what are your fig leaves? Is it being a good person? Maybe not religious. Maybe not religious. Is it just being a good person or being a good parent or, you know, making a name for yourself in the world? Or if you call yourself a Christian, do an audit of your involvement in church, your prayer life, your Bible reading. Is it leaves? Is it just for show? Is it a little too nonchalant or is it the real thing? Is it joyful? Because you're resting in Jesus. Is there power in it? Because the Spirit's at work in what you're doing. These are the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves as we ponder this text. Jesus cursed 
the fig tree for its lack of fruit, he judged the temple for the same thing. And this is typically referred to as, and if you look in your Bible, you might even see the heading, the cleansing of the temple. So verses 19, excuse me, 15 through 19 might even have that heading in your Bible, but actually it goes beyond that. Jesus was prophetically shutting the temple down. He was acting symbolically, conveying God's judgment upon what was happening there in that place. And as we know, in less than 40 years, in AD 70, the temple would be destroyed and literally ripped down to the studs by the Romans because it was empty, spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus here was condemning not just the physical temple complex, but this whole way of trying to relate to God on the basis of your moral performance instead of his grace. He said this in Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that too is an allusion to judgment, to the judgment. And so we have to ask one more question before we move on, and that is this. Well, then what was the fruit that Jesus was looking for? What was missing? And the text thankfully provides an answer. It says you look there in verse 17 that Jesus began to teach them and I love that that he has you know he didn't just he didn't just come in and throw some tables over and walk out like Clint Eastwood in an old you know western movie he he made this prophetic show this act of shutting the temple down and then he stayed and began to patiently teach these people and he taught he preached a sermon which is summarized here from two old testament texts from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, which is why we read those, those two passages earlier. So if you look back in your worship folder, you'll see that the passages we've already read are from those two places. And so let's focus on verse 17 for just a minute. He said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations? Now he's quoting first from the prophet Isaiah, from, verse, uh, from chapter 56 of Isaiah's prophecy. And the verse there is part of a, verse 7 is a part of a larger passage about God's grace and his welcome of the outsider. And so from the beginning, the goal was not just that Israel would worship the Lord, but that they would lead all of the nations of the earth to worship God. Israel was to be God's worship leader on the earth to, to cause all of the other nations to join in with their worship. And so when the temple was built, there was a large section of the perimeter outside of the actual structure of the complex uh, that was set aside for non-Israelites to come and to participate in Israel's worship. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. And from doing the math, we know that it was 35 acres. God set aside 35 acres right there in the middle of his city for all of the nations to come and gather and worship him. That was his heart to see the nations of the earth join with Israel in worship. 35 acres all around the outside. It was a space, and it was in this space that the money changing and the commerce was taking place. The Jews still had their space. They could go further in to the temple complex, but they were crowding out the Gentiles. They were making it hard for these non-believing people to worship the Lord by taking up the space that God had set aside for them and crowding out their own worship by making it so loud and noisy, they had become too inwardly focused and unwelcoming of the outsider. That's what Jesus says. And then he goes on, and he quickly moves from that to Jeremiah chapter 7, specifically verse 11. He says, 
My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And this part is quoted from the prophet Jeremiah. And the text in Jeremiah is a warning about doing evil, about oppressing people and advantaging yourself at the expense of others and then using religion to never change. And so Israel had compartmentalized their religious life from the rest of their life. They stole there in Jeremiah. The problem was the people were stealing and they were murdering and they were committing adultery and they were worshiping idols. And then it was all okay because they still made it to church on Sunday. And these people, the system was designed to exploit people. Because people, this is a feast, so people have traveled from all over the the country, and they were bringing their unblemished, perfect, you know, you had to have a perfect sacrifice, and they were bringing their sacrifices, they were bringing their lambs and whatever to the priests, and the priests would say, "Mm, yeah, you know, it looks like something happened along the way, and maybe the hoof got chipped, and you know, this is not an acceptable sacrifice, but I have one that you can buy at a reasonable markup which was not a reasonable markup. It was like Taylor Swift tickets on the secondary market. They were robbing people in the name of the worship of God. It's gross. These people who had traveled great distances at their own expense, and here the religious leaders are saying, yeah, no, they're, they're profiting and oppressing. And Jesus is not happy. He's pretty upset. But here's the thing, it's a warning to us to make sure that we do not become like them and suffer the same judgment because we can, if we're not careful, we can become too inwardly focused and unwelcoming to those who do not believe like we do or look like we do. We can act as if it's okay to just be awful to people as long as you believe the right things and make it to church on Sunday. But it's just leaves without fruit. Might look good from far away, but up close, there's nothing there. No authentic spiritual life, no power, no joy. And Jesus has something else in mind for us. And so secondly, quickly, we need to move uh, to where he begins to describe the new community that he is shaping. As a contrast to the failed religion of, of Israel, Israel is the withered fig tree Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins, his resurrection and the birthing of the new creation, his ascension into heaven, and uh, his to possess all power and authority and to govern all things for the sake of the church and his sending of the spirit to give new birth to those who believe in him and to baptize them with fire and with spiritual power. All of this results in what the, the scholars call a new Israel, a new community of faith, the true Israel, the kind of people, the kind of community of faith that Israel was always meant to be, but that is now true for all of those who have the faith of Abraham and put their faith in Jesus and are born again by the spirit characterized first by true faith. Look at verse 22. He says, like, here is the the issue that he has. He turns to his disciples and he says, have faith in God. Do you see that? Just a little phrase, have faith in God. He says, "The, the Jewish people had lots of activity, lots of busyness. They had sacrifices and ceremonies, but no faith. The problem with the kind of religion on display in the temple is it's all about you, It's about what you're doing and whether you're doing it right or wrong, but that is is just wrongheaded. I I remember, I've told this story so many times, but there are a lot of you who are new, so I can get away with kind of telling the old stories again. But I was thinking about this the first time I went to India, and I I had the privilege of going to India about a dozen times in my 20s, 
when I went there the first time, I was jet lagged so bad. It was like four o'clock in the morning and I'd been up all night. And all of a sudden, right outside of our hotel window, there, there was just this noise that came up and it scared me to death. And so the guy that I was traveling with, who was a seasoned veteran, came in and he said, let's go, let's go down there. And we went downstairs and went around the corner to uh, the neighborhood that was right outside there and the neighborhood temple there, the neighborhood, the gates of the neighborhood and so forth. And the people were there and they were chanting and yelling and banging cymbals and making all of this noise at four o'clock in the morning before the sun had even come up. And I asked the man I was traveling with, what in the world are they doing? And he said, they are here to wake the gods up so that they will pay attention to them and bless them and give them a good day. And that's religion that's all about you. The same thing happened to Israel. The same thing can happen to the Christian church if we're not careful. So Tim Keller has written, he says, pagan temple worship was based on the idea that it's our job to attract and merit the attention of the God or the gods. So you came in and you made sacrifices and showed with great pageantry your honor of the God. Every other religion, he says, every other religion says you go and you sacrifice, you hurt, you cut yourself, you throw your body into the flames. You do all of that to show the God, your love and your honor and attract his attention. But only Christianity in the whole world, in the whole history of the world, only Christianity claims that God has come, that he sacrificed that he became poor and gave it all away, that he was hurt, that he was cut, that he, as it were, threw his body into the flames and he did it to attract you. See, moralistic religion that is all about your effort and your performance, it's no different than paganism. Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God, faith is all about God and what God has done and what God has promised and who God is and the person of faith, it says. So you say, okay, well, how do I know if I'm a person of faith? Well, there's a number of things it says here. And the first thing it says is that the person of faith is a person who prays because that's how faith expresses itself. Look, look at what he says in prayer. The temple, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. It had become a bazaar. Have you ever been to a bazaar? They're bazaar. I mean, it's crazy, loud and people everywhere and you can hardly move. It was meant to be a house of prayer, but it had become something different. So Jesus redirects us back towards prayer. The main activity of the church should be prayer. Because God's heart is wide open to our asking. Look at what it says in verse 24. Let it sit uncomfortably on your heart the way it does mine. Look at what Jesus says. He says, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Now that's really something. But you, what you got to see is, but it's not the praying. It's the believing behind the prayer. And it's not just the believing. It's God's open heart to us behind the believing that makes it so. So the Heidelberg Catechism defines faith like this. And this is so beautiful. I, I do this um, devotional thing and, and it has me working through the Heidelberg Catechism and this week I read this listen to how the Catechism says it says I trust this is prayer this is faith I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul I trust God so much that I do not doubt that he will turn my good to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears he is able to do this because he is almighty God he desires to do it because he's a faithful father isn't that great? 
See, the big deal is not you praying. It's not your prayers or whether you do it right. The big deal is God's power. The big deal is God's open heart, his ability, and his desire to do what you ask of him. That's what the text is meant to to focus us on. Faith, faith expresses itself in prayer, but faith also expresses itself in love. Have faith in God, he says, and a person who's truly living, you know, in faith is a person who will be praying, but there it goes on. It's kind of abrupt and it's weird at first. You got to kind of make sense of it, but it also describes the way that faith expresses itself in love because the more you love God, the more you will love people. The more attentive and aware of God you become, it makes you more attentive and aware of others. And so faith without love is dead, James says. So the real failure of temple worship was that the people claimed to believe in God, but they treated one another terribly. So Jesus, when he describes this new community he would create through the Spirit, he starts with faith, and he says, if you have faith, you're going to be praying, and then immediately he transitions to love, kind of in the, in the middle of the thought, to specifically forgiveness. Now look how abrupt it is when he goes on in verses 25. So he's talking about faith, believe in your heart, whatever you ask of the Lord, it will be done for you, and then in verse and then, um, 24 he says, I tell you, whatever you ask, Believe you received it, it'll be yours. And then verse 25 comes. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven can forgive you your trespasses. Now, it seems abrupt, but it's not the only place where Jesus links prayer and forgiveness. It seems like most of the time when Jesus talks about prayer, he starts talking about prayer, he ends up talking about forgiveness because apparently the two go hand in hand. And that is because the you, the you, in pithy statements, write this one down. The you... In Christianity is always plural. It is here, all throughout this text, beginning in verse 21 and down to verse 25, every you is a plural you. So every you is y'all. Most of the time when Jesus says you, if you're a southerner, you can translate it, Y'all, which means you can't deal with God without at the same time dealing with the rest of the y'all. You see that? We're all sinners. So that means we have one option, forgiveness. (laughs) And forgiveness is not heroic. You can't do Christianity without it. It's as natural inside of the Christian faith. It's as natural and necessary as breathing in and breathing out. Still, the way that Jesus says it here is a bit unsettling, isn't it? I mean, there's a man, the way he talks about prayer is a bit unsettling. The way he talks about forgiveness is maybe even more so because he says we must forgive so that we can be forgiven. I mean, is that right? It's awkward. You see that? Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's so awkward that if you notice, if you're paying attention, You'll see, if you have the ESV, you'll see that this this section ends with verse 25. If you look down in your Bible, the next section begins with verse 27. Well, what happened to verse 26? And the commentators here are making some decisions. The verse 26 is not included in the ESV because it's not in the the earliest manuscript. So so they, they leave it out. But verse 26 highlights this point even more, this idea of you must forgive to be forgiven. And it's so awkward and so kind of outside of the way we normally think about this that I'm not going to accuse anybody of anybody, but the, anything, but the ESV just thinks it better just to leave it out. And, but even that wrestling with that shows how uncomfortable this is. So what does it mean? Well, oh, I don't have a really good answer to that question. 
But I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you, for, that you forgiving others is the condition of God forgiving you. That would turn salvation into works again. So it does mean something like this. If you claim to believe the gospel, if you at your core believe that you are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, but then you refuse to forgive somebody else, then you don't really believe what you say you believe. You're not truly resting in the grace of Jesus. The grace of God powerfully changes those who experience it. If you're not forgiving, it's a sign that you may not know his grace as deeply as you think you do. If you're praying and you realize you have something against someone else and you refuse to forgive them, your prayer's a farce. So much so that he says, if you're praying and you realize, oh gosh, I've got to like deal with something with somebody else, God says, stop talking to me and go talk to them. Isn't that great? Like, what are you doing talking to me? Sounds like you got some stuff to do. But, but, but hear what he says. He says, if you're praying and you realize, oh, I'm living in unforgiveness, and you don't have this reflex reaction to go and to deal with that, then your prayer is a farce. You're a big fake. God's forgiveness is not merited by ours, but the unforgiving person reveals that they have failed to understand and accept grace. Their heart is still operating in a workspace system. They deserve to be forgiven, but the other person does not. So this is, this is so crucial. So crucial what he says here. Because he's shaping us into this community of faith and love, prayer and forgiveness. You can boil everything down. The fruit that Jesus is seeking is that, prayer and forgiveness. If you want to do a spiritual inventory of your life, it really comes down to those two things. Have faith in God. How do you know if you have faith in God? Are you a person of prayer? Are you a person who forgives? That is the fruit that Jesus is seeking. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Really, when you think about it. If Christianity is God, not you, right? If Christianity is God, God's character, God's power, God's promises, then the way you do life is by asking, not through effort. If Christianity is grace, not merit, not good works that deserve repayment. If Christianity is grace, if God's love and acceptance is a free gift all because of Jesus and we are undeserving, then the way you do relationships is by covering sin and forgiving. They're both, they're both a signal of spiritual power. You see this language here? This is going to be completely unsatisfying to you and I love it. It's going to leave you, I'm leaving you with a cliffhanger here because I don't know how to resolve it. But you have this language of moving mountains, verse 23. That makes Presbyterians quake like the mountains. Like, what does that mean? Now, it's hyperbole for sure, which I love that Jesus uses hyperbole because when my wife accuses me of doing the same thing, I can just remind her that I'm like Jesus. He uses hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point, but it points to substance, not just image and appearance. To He's saying if you're, if you're a person who truly believes in God, then there's something real and living inside of you. If your faith is in Jesus, if you've been born again by the Spirit into spiritual life, then the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is working in you. That's what the Bible says. And working through you. The gospel is the power of God. Right? The power of God. Power to look at a mountain and say, move. And it moves. The power to say, I, you know what, this thing's going on in my kid's life and I have no idea how to fix it. I have no strength to do anything about it. It's this huge mountain that I can't go over and I can't seem to go around. And you say, mountain move, and it moves. Not because there's something in your prayer, but because God is able. 
And he's invited you into that kind of believing. From faith, see, from faith, don't, and here's the thing, don't try to explain it away. Have faith in God, it says. And from faith flows prayer, forgiveness, and all the other fruit that Jesus is looking for. So let's, let's try really hard not to explain any of that away. To just receive it as Jesus says it to us here. Have faith in God. And you will not be like these people that he has so much against here in the temple. But instead, a true community of faith and love who say with, there's an old hymn by Jay Hart that says this, and I love it. He says, when filthy passions or unjust professors' minds control, when men give up the reins to lust and interest sways the whole, or when they seek themselves to please, incline, decline each thorny road, Indulge their sloth, consult their ease, and slight the fear of God. The faith is vain, such men profess. It comes not from above. The righteous man does righteousness, and true faith works by love. And so then he prays, help us, dear Lord, to honor thee. Let our good works abound. Thou art that green, that fruitful tree. From thee our fruit is found. Amen? Would you pray with me as we finish the Lord? We do pray that. Jesus, uh, you are the tree. We, the, the whole point of this is not that, that we need to get our act together and figure out how to do it better because we failed and to become the tree. No, you are, you are the tree. You are the true Israel. And we are, you are the vine. We are merely branches. But if we abide in you and you in us, you say that we can bear much fruit. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so the whole point is our abiding. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and cause us to abide in the love that God has for Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the love they share together. You've invited us into that very life and love. Would you make it so that we might abide in you and you in us through faith and the confidence of your love and your acceptance of us through Jesus Christ alone, and may the result be that that communion and that abiding would produce a great movement of spiritual power in us and through us, that we would bear much fruit, and that that fruit would be for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that is the movement of faith. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Right? When you say, uh, Jesus, I have nothing, you have to be my everything. That is, that is the unleashing of the spiritual power in your life towards the kind of fruit that he desires for you to bear for his glory. So we come to him with nothing, and then he, f he fills our empty hands with everything we need uh, to go and live a life of faith and love. That's the promise of this benediction, too, that in Jesus, if your faith is truly in him, then the Father's smile just is upon your life, and you can live underneath it uh, no matter what you meet with this week. So receive this benediction. Uh, and know that he sends you to bear fruit, not on your own, but in his strength uh, and under his smile. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. God bless you. Go in his peace.
Hey, hey, Ethan, can we make sure this is A, we're going to need this in the next, Jonathan. We just need to make sure we have it. Well. So let's try it. Check one, two, check, check, one, two. One, two, check, check, check. Is that the right, that's the good, is A the one that, check one.